Welcome to Notes from the Field, presented by Canon Press and Noeo Science. For all your homeschool science needs, be sure to check out noeoscience.com. That's N-O-E-O science.com. N-O-E-O science.com. Well, we're here with Notes from the Field. And yes, another episode. Another episode. Field's kind of a fun word. And, you know, it, it means a lot. We both slide, like to spend a lot of time outside. Right. So kind of that term, the field, when you're talking about a scientist who's out in the field, he's out there in his, in his niche, in his habitat, doing what he loves best. Mm-hmm. Um, or field, it could be a field of, of science too. Right. And, and today it's kind of taking that, that latter uh, meaning as we uh, talk about uh, the periodic table of elements. You know, and I wish we had some survey instrument to kind of check people's blood pressures or their their gut reactions or some brain monitors to kind of scan to see what is popping into their heads when they hear that phrase. Periodic, Periodic table. table. Like are they oh are they grimacing? Are they are they full of joy? You know, I've kinda a chemistry's a chemistry's one of those classes, often junior year, some schools, some classical Christian schools actually teach it. Uh, as the, as the first of the big uh, mm-hmm. sciences, right? Um, intentionally uh, to to get that chemical background before biology, which is helpful, and so. But it's often one of those classes that is really hard. It yeah, tends to be a hard, hard class. It tests people. It does. It it really stretches them, and uh, it just um, you mentioned something that made me think of this book that I just started. I wish I had read the whole thing before we did this episode. Um, it's called. The Disappearing Spoon, and Other True Tales of Madness, Love, and the History of the World from the Periodic Table of the Elements by Sam Keen. And uh, there was just one sentence that is from chapter one that, that struck me that you just uh, mentioned about how do people, you know, what's their gut reaction when they hear that word? Yeah. And he actually uh, really sort of sums it up. People remember the table with a mix of fascination, fondness, inadequacy, and loathing. (laughs) Inadequacy. (laughs) Is the table inadequate or are they inadequate to the task? They're inadequate to the task (laughs) because the table is interesting at a a shallow level. Like, oh, here's... Here's what the universe that the universe that we know of, this is what it's composed of, you know, in all sorts of different combinations, but this is what it's composed of. So it just sort of, it's sort of, you know, awesome that, uh, absolutely the scientists have able, have been able to compile all of the fundamental types of matter into one organized table. So that's that's where you're there's some fondness there. Yeah. But also and fascination, but there's that inadequacy because it's so rich, so deep. It tells you so much, so much more than you know, just even an introductory chemistry course can really explain. Absolutely. And so that's the inadequacy. Yeah. And then there's uh loathing because they're <laughs> inadequate, like uh, you know, chemistry is a stretch for some people yeah. to the point where their mind just snaps, especially if they're not really good at math and all of the um, 
uh, equations right. that they need to know how to deal with in uh, problem solving chemistry. Yeah, you know, and we've known about we've known about many of these elements for a long time. Many of them are mentioned in the Bible. Mm-hmm. We hear about we hear about copper. We hear about a lot of other minerals that are are actual elements that are on that periodic table, and the history of it is 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 remarkable. I've dug just a little bit into the history. Uh, I have a, a little bit of background in chem. I have a chem minor uh, from mm-hmm. my undergraduate degree, and I've f- probably forgotten more chemistry than I've than I've used. But I have gotten to use it a, a little bit over the years, and I am loving the history of science uh, almost as much as the 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 science process itself lately. And the history here is is rich. Here we have this usually a two dimensional kind of projection uh, of the periodic table of elements. It's a poster on the wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can get some three-dimensional types of of models that attempt to to show the periodic table, um, but you've got this this structure that, as you pointed out, it's embedded with so many periodic uh, patterns. Mm-hmm. Periodic meaning regularly repeating, which is why it's called the periodic table, and those periods refer to the rows. And so, if you're right. look you're looking at this rectangular box that is the periodic table, and it's full of these squares. Mm-hmm. And I would say one of the best things you can do to just capture curiosity or spark interest is get a periodic table up on the wall, yeah. especially if it's colorful, and, mm-hmm. and just uh, uh, introduce it as an idea. And this really is a, it really is like the card catalog of elements. So we've got the, these periodic rows. And so uh, interestingly, um, in 2019, the Royal Society of Chemistry, the American, uh, I think it's called the American Chemical Society. Several other big national and international groups came together and they, they deemed that 2019 should be the international year of the periodic table. Hmm. And they made a big deal out of it. This is pre-COVID when you can gather together, you know. Right. So they had an international opening ceremony. I think it was in Tokyo. They had a closing ceremony in Paris. They had conferences. They had orchestras performing. Wow. It was this. It was this monumental effort. and the. The orchestrating organization was the Mendeleev Chemical Society. Right. And Mendeleev... Who the, yeah, who was the one who sort of uh, formulated or put a good chunk of that table Yeah. So he, he gets the credit for coming up with uh, the really kind of the iteration one of this periodic right. table. Because it's been added to with, with added, that bottom couple... Yeah, uh, so 1869, rows. he came up with his periodic table that had 63 elements. Mm-hmm. And the brilliance of Mendeleev, uh, which, and you can kind of see this in older periodic tables. Uh, sometimes you'll see squares that are empty. Mendeleev left a lot of squares in between his elements, left them empty because he knew enough to say, I think we're going to find an element Element that fits that fits right here. That's just remarkable. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, and so um, a, a rich history there, starting with Mendeleev and, and coming up to now. And now we finally have names for all 118. Wow. And for a while there, uh, even, even at uh, periodic tables that are still floating around, you'll see, you'll often see these little U, the letter U. Uh, so elements say 112 through 118. For years, they just put a U and a U there. And uh, that's because they hadn't determined a name yet. Right. And I'll get into some of the history of that later. But um, let's hear... Um, Gordon, maybe just help our, help our audience understand uh, what elements are maybe the most ubiquitous, 
in living things or might be the most helpful in, in kind of getting started in introducing younger kids to, to this idea of chemistry? Well, yeah. Um, you know, I've only been reinforcing the types of chemistry that directly involve biological systems. So, you know, I've forgotten a lot of the periodic table except for the elements that sort of directly affect biology. Either it's what biological systems are made out of uh, or biological systems need. For example, well, oxygen is definitely part of all of the biomolecules, they call them, carbohydrates, lipids, proteins, uh, and nucleic acids. We definitely have a lot of oxygen in those molecules, uh, in those compounds, but oxygen is also needed for respiration. Right. And, uh, and so the, the elements on the periodic table that are directly involved in biology are carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, and hydrogen, uh, as well as to a lesser degree, phosphorus and sulfur, yeah. but they're there. Uh, sulfur is an important element in proteins and phosphorus is an important element in the structure of DNA and RNA. And so when I'm teaching my, my biology class and I have to do a little bit of chemistry, I go through and talk about those elements and how they uh, form, how they bond whether it's ionic or covalent, usually in biomolecules, you've got covalent bonds uh, of sharing of electrons between atoms and, um, and forming. And so I have my students learn the molecular structure of uh, a basic sugar like glucose. And for example, glucose is uh, composed of that we say the molecular formula is C6H12O6. It's got six carbon atoms, it's got 12 hydrogen atoms, and six oxygen atoms. My students have to learn how to draw a glucose molecule. Now, there are other simple sugars like fructose with a different arrangement, right? But many times they have the same molecular formula, the C6H12O6, but it's just, they're slightly put together. The tinker toys of the elements are put together a little bit differently. Yeah. And they give that sugar a different characteristics. Yeah. No, you're getting at some of the interesting so the, ways we have to, to think about how do you teach something yeah. that you can't see? Yeah. This is, this is sometimes really difficult uh, for certain people that are used to just seeing tangible things, yeah, and you're talking about molecules and atoms that are just, and I, I don't want people to think that it's abstract. It's not abstract. It's not this other world. It's our world, but small, really, really, really small. Yeah. And since it's very hard for us to wrap our minds around big things and small things, I usually try to have my students enlarge that whatever we're doing. They actually have molecular models that are really nice. So they're plastic and they have carbon atoms in black. They have hydrogen white. Yeah, I picked and, up a couple to thrift and, stores over the right, years. They're yeah. really helpful. And I don't have a ton, but I have enough to build a glucose molecule. And they've got little plastic pegs that hook these 
spherical atoms together. So oxygen is sort of an orangish red, hydrogen is white, and uh, carbon's black, and nitrogen is, I'm trying I think to, it's, I, th- I think it's I think blue. it's usually blue. Yeah, blue. Yeah. Anyway, and so uh, sort of like Tinker Toys, you can hook these little atoms together and build molecules. Yeah. And you can also like build them with these plastic models, or you can, using letters on a, on a whiteboard, you can draw these molecules out uh, yeah. with the C, with the symbols of each element. So right. C is for carbon, H is for hydrogen, O is for oxygen. And then you can draw little lines to represent the bonds between these atoms. And so I have my students, they don't have to build with the plastic model because I don't have enough plastic models to do it. So on a test, they draw out uh, the molecule yep. and I grade them on whether they put all the atoms in the right place. Yeah. And, uh, well, and there's good precedent for this Tinker Toy approach. Yeah. I mean, uh, some famous photos of, of Watson and Crick yeah. with their DNA molecule yeah, they piecing it together. It. They used the, they didn't have it. nice plastic models, but they had the machine shop at Cambridge University yeah. build um, molecular structures out of metal parts. And then using ring stands and other clamps and stuff, they, they built this double helix. Yep. And uh, with all the right bond angles and everything like that, based on all of their x-ray crystallography data yeah. that they had gathered unto themselves from from other <laughs> from other people that's a that's a story for another yeah, time no, it is but <laughs> yeah it's just uh yeah chemistry if you can enlarge the the smallness to something that you can manipulate also it's important to get a good scale of okay yeah i've enlarged it so i can deal with it but you also have to realize how small it actually is One of the facts that I really liked when I was a kid, I was looking through the World Book Encyclopedia, and I remember in the um, section on water, and so I was more into biology, but I was fascinated with just the, you know, I knew that water was H2O. Mm -hmm. So one atom of oxygen, two atoms of hydrogen. And I remember they put one little fact. I don't know if they've altered that fact with more modern, sophisticated tools to to see if that piece of trivia is still accurate. But I remember them saying that one drop of water in the encyclopedia, it said one drop of water, I'm assuming an average drop, uh, since drops can vary in size, one drop of water has 33 billion times a billion water molecules. Okay. Right. 33 billion times a billion. So that's, I don't know, 33 with 18 zeros after it, something like that. Nine nine zeros is a billion. Very small scale. Right. One billion is nine and then another billion onto that. So it's 18 zeros after 33. And that's how many water molecules are in one drop. Wow. So that gives you an idea of how, how incredibly small, how incredibly small. And, and so, and, may, and maybe that's in part why this periodic table idea has been so successful because it's something we can grab a handle of, uh, we can see it. Uh, and, you know, it kind of serves as a rich 
you know, for classical educators out there, for, uh, for homeschoolers, it serves as a rich, maybe even a topical study. You know, you can use it and go in so many different directions um, mm-hmm. because there's a rich history behind the development of it, but there's also all the names. Uh-huh. So all of these the elements, symbols. yeah, all these elements and have symbols. A, yeah. Like and, sodium is N-A. Yeah. And so you can look at, uh, why is it N-A? Why isn't it S? Right. Why is it? Or something. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so it's from Latin. Many of them are, many of these chemical uh, elements, the symbol goes with uh, the Latin or the Greek. Um, there's some of the latter uh, element names uh, were named by the discovering entities. And sometimes mm-hmm. that's been in dispute, which is kind of interesting. During the Cold War, among all of the many races, if we can thank the Cold War for something, we can thank it for, you know, just incredible investment in, in science and tech. And part of that is the race to the moon was one, the race to dig the deepest hole in the Earth's surface was one. Russia won both those. Wow. Uh, the, the race to, uh, to design these artificial elements where we have these particle accelerators, these massive underground, typically, chambers where, where subatomic particles... Mm-hmm. Neutrons, electrons, protons are slammed into elements to see what sticks and what bounces off. <laughs> and it's kind of this wild idea where we can't, we have been successful in artificially creating certain elements. Right. Uh, and and they, those aren't those the bottom two yeah, those periods? Yeah, the, some of those are, uh, some of those are above the bottom two periods, actually. Oh, okay. The um, elements 108 through 118, a lot of those are artificial. Some of the ones on the bottom are as well. Mm-hmm. And those have uh, names that kind of ring of these uh, these national efforts to uh, discover the next element. And for mm-hmm. some examples here um, would be, let's look at element uh, 113, Nihonium. Okay. Nihonium, uh, named after the Japanese team. So the Japanese team oh, wow. uh, is credited with discovering that one. Uh, Florovium and Muscovium. Okay. The team in Dubna, Russia. Right. That discovered those, uh, and then 116, 117, Livermorium and Tennessee. Wow. The Lawrence Livermore Lab in, in California, and then a right. uh, Oak Ridge Lab in Tennessee. And so, uh, but there are many other uh, etymologies. Right. I think it'd be a neat Here, study. Here's uh, one uh, that I read in the book, uh, The Disappearing Spoon. The symbol for mercury, so what is it? HG. Well, HG. Consists of two letters that don't even appear in its name. Unraveling that mystery, it's from hydrogyrum, Latin for water silver. Ooh, that's good. One of two, one of two liquids on the periodic table, yeah. liquid at, at kind of water standard silver. temperature. Help me uh, understand how heavily ancient languages and mythology influence the periodic table. Something you can still see in the Latin names or the newer super heavy elements uh, along the bottom row. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just a, there's a lot of history in the periodic table, a lot of science. Yeah, there's uh, d- the very bottom row, the, the last two rows. And this was, this was actually a, an invention of Glenn Seaborg. Mm-hmm. So one of two people who were alive when the element was named for them. So uh, Glenn Seaborg wow. worked at, and I think he's still alive, uh, Glenn Seaborg worked at the Lawrence Livermore Lab, the Berkeley Lab, uh, and mm-hmm. they were credited with doing a lot of this um, particle accelerator work. 
in, in kind of the mid 20th century. And uh, he came up with this idea that, you know, those elements, 57 through 71, and not all had been discovered at the time, but he said, these are different enough. I think we need to actually take them out and move them down to the bottom. And so this is a relatively new phenomenon. These two mm-hmm. groups at the bottom called the lanthanides and actinides, which are, which are incredibly radioactive elements. Uh, and so we see, we've seen adjustments to this model. Yeah, I don't know if you can call it a model, but adjustments to this remarkable um, table. <laughs> table, yeah, the periodic table. Yeah, I saw this uh, during that 150th anniversary um, year of the periodic table. There was an actual periodic table I saw that someone had crafted of wood oh, wow. with little wooden blocks, and you could lift up each uh, lift up each block and and either have a sample underneath it or something representing right. uh, that. That's neat. Uh, that element. Yeah, but we see we see references to Greek uh, mythology down there: uh, uranium, neptunium, plutonium, and uh, and some of these are radioactive elements. Are actually we kind of think of them as, you know, uh, they are certainly dangerous, um, but we tend to think of nuclear energy or nuclear weapons when right. we think of. Um, so yeah, why don't you? Uh, I don't know if you want to just talk about it or if you want to explain some things. You mentioned radioactivity. Yeah. What's going on uh, when an element, when some radioactive atom gives off some kind of radiation? What, yeah. What, what's, what are they giving off? What's flying out? What's flying out? Yeah. So in, in learning the periodic, periodic table, you kind of learn some, um, some ways to hang that information on that model in your mind. And so if you look at these, uh, these squares on your periodic table, and I encourage everyone to check out one of my favorite periodic tables lately is P-Table, which is an interactive online one, ptable.com. And you can look at the periodic table and scroll over it and, and learn about etymology, but also learn about what makes up these elements. And so that's, that's what you're getting at is uh, these elements aren't the end of the story. Right. There's stuff even smaller. Yeah. And we have ele- uh, electrons, protons, and neutrons that make up these elements. And in a remarkable way, the good Lord has designed these things. Uh, to be in in a certain number of electrons, protons, and neutrons mm-hmm. to to be stable, right? And certain elements are more stable than others, right? Uh, for example, uh, so what's the nucleus made out of? Yeah, so the nucleus is the center. We hear the word nucleus used in other contexts in science too. It means the center, and the nucleus of the atom is made up of neutrons and protons. So really, really dense center, and then seemingly a lot of space. And then these buzzing, whirling, I think of them kind of like bees, mm-hmm. uh, these, these swarming electrons that are buzzing in, in almost seemingly random patterns around, around that nucleus. And, and so you've got a, an, active, an active system. Yeah. Which is mostly space. If mostly you look, space. When you look at the outer, say, outer shell or uh, orbitals that are flying around and and you said sort of chaotic but also there's these you know very precise patterns yeah uh you don't have to go into but s become d orbitals yeah orbitals. they orbit in certain shapes yeah and uh, have certain amounts of energy associated with those different orbitals and mm-hmm. um and so the uh, gordon mentioned this earlier the types of bonding and so the way i like to tell uh, teach my students this is uh, you know, if you have a couple of elements walking down the street and they have a dense nucleus full of neutrons and protons, they have these electrons on the outside. 
And if you have, if, if one element meets another, what's going to be the first part of that uh, atom to engage with, interact with its neighbor? And that's the electron. The electrons are going to be the ones out there on the periphery of the atom. Yeah. And interact. they're, they're going to be shared or they're going to be transferred. And it's kind of fun to talk about international politics when you talk about how these electrons are either shared or, or there's an actual transaction right. of, of selling and buying uh, right. taking place there. But there's a tremendous amount happening down there uh, at the subatomic level. And, and these particles are incredibly small. But radioactive materials like Seaborgium, Glenn Seaborg, uh, Oganessian is the other one named for a person, uh, but maybe some elements that we've heard of too. We've heard of radium, uh, plutonium, uranium is probably one of the most mm -hmm. well-known radioactive, radioactive elements. These, uh, these versions of these elements, because we have multiple versions that we call yeah, isotopes. isotopes. Yeah, they have a different number of neutron. And so if you have the wrong number of neutrons, it tends to destabilize the whole system. Mm -hmm. And those elements uh, are called radioactive. And they're actually trying to stabilize themselves by releasing energy. Yeah, they, and, and releasing particles. Yeah. So sometimes they'll release an alpha particle. Yep. Which is two protons, two neutrons that they sort of jettison out of their nucleus. And that helps. I mean, is it just sort of the atom trying to get more stable? That's how I that, just can, yeah. I just yeah. do that for fun. I think. Yeah. Trying to, uh, to. It's to, not feeling well, so it throws up. That's exactly right. And it hurts everyone around it, right? It's kind of like, it's, you know, that unstable uncle who's just constantly getting rid of nervous energy. Um, and, and so uh, we see that happening and it happens in a regular pattern. You know, the mm -hmm. amazing thing about all these elements is uh, these patterns are measurable and predictable. And so, and, and this is the basis for, uh, for all of living systems as well. Mm -hmm. uh, this is at least the matter part of what living systems are made of. Um, and so radioactive materials have a lot of uses because they're regularly and predictably releasing a known quantity of energy and particles. Um, that means that that increment can be determined. And for mm -hmm. example, americium, which is a radioactive element found in every person's house, it's required hmm. by law to be in your house in several different places in your house. Hmm. And that's because it powers your smoke detector. Okay. And so this americium uh, kind of serves as uh, a bit of a, uh, a signal uh, that when it is interrupted by smoke can be used to uh, instigate a, uh, the switch of a, a, a device and uh, the alarm going off in your smoke hmm. detector. And we also, yeah, we also have several, several of these radioactive materials that are used or have been used to power the spacecraft. Uh, that are out the Voyagers and others that are beyond our solar system now. So yeah, really, really fun stuff. Let's see, Gordon, let me ask you just this question. Sure. Maybe tell us an element story or tell us about what, if you have a favorite element that's kind of just always interested you or, or one that you have read about recently that is just rather, and they're all exceptional, of course. The, but they are. Anyone and standing I out. gravitate towards all of the stuff that, that deals with life. Yeah. Like I said, but they're, they are not as, I mean, they're extraordinary in the sense that collectively they make, you know, carbohydrates, proteins, lipids. And so that's why I'm interested in them. They yeah. build cells, they build bodies. And I, I like that. But yeah. I think the, the thing that I think we're all fascinated with mercury being a metal yeah. that is liquid at room temperature. 
And um, the, you know, in particular, I was thinking it wasn't that long ago when the medical science was more, <laughs> was just not good. <laughs> <laughs> if it you go a, in, you might not uh, come home. This, this was not a medical man. This was a medicine man. <laughs> and uh, and I was just, uh, you know, again, reading from this book Alchemist. that I just started, um, the author of this book book was i think early on was fascinated with the periodic table just because when he was taking his when he, his mom took his temperature with a glass thermometer when he had strep throat in grade school you know he would often be talking with the thermometer in his mouth and it would fall out and break on the floor and then the mercury would you know he was just fascinated with this mercury mm -hmm. but then he did some historical research and he remembered that, well, he learned that Lewis and Clark took on their journey across the United States, Dr. Uh, Dr. Rush's, uh, let's see, yeah. Dr. Rush, wow. Dr. Rush's pills. And so, yeah, Dr. Rush's Benjamin Rush. He was actually a signer of the Declaration of Independence yeah. and a medical I don't know if you want to call him a hero, um, but these <laughs> pills were, were mercury, you know, and it was basically to purge someone who's not feeling good. Well, well, this will make them feel even less good, <laughs> but they will, because the body doesn't like the poison. Right. And the mercury pill is poisoning them even more. They'll purge everything, uh, probably both ends. And, uh. So they took this uh, on their expedition, these Dr. Rush's laxatives called Dr. Rush's bilious pills. And uh, it says, as a handy side effect, Dr. Rush's pills have enabled modern archaeologists to track down campsites yes. used by the explorers. Absolutely. With the weird food and questionable water they encountered in the wild, someone in their party was always queasy. And to this day, mercury deposits dot the soil many places where the gang dug a latrine, perhaps after one of Dr. Rush's thunderclappers that worked a little too well. <laughs> it's like it's like the frob scottle in the BFG. Right. Uh, so it just uh, just interesting how just 200 years ago and they were using these poisons that just do all sorts of horrible things to your body, make your hair fall out. And yeah, it's just yeah. not, not good. No, they found some of those campsites here in Idaho. I was with a historian couple out in the, in the Clearwater mountains years ago. And, uh, they were explaining that process of, yeah. of helping, uh, Helps find, archaeology, but absolutely finding some of these campsites. <laughs> yeah. Not so yeah, good for the no. body. Right. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll leave, uh, today with this. And I'm sure this is something that's occurred to, to many folks before, but uh, we have we have this periodic table, and it gives us all of these remarkable, discrete elements and information about them, and and their qualities and their characteristics. But really, I think part of the miracle of God's creation, at least in this scale, when we're talking about atoms and molecules, is what happens when you when you take the right number of one and another and add them together. Right. And the results, I'm they just can't be predictable. Mm -hmm. um, you get water from two gases. Right. You know, you get salt from a, a poisonous uh, gas chlorine and from this shiny 
a flammable, brittle metal sodium. Yeah. So yeah, and, and so it's just inexplicable. Yeah, totally. Once you recombine them in different ways, you get uh, molecules or ions of some sort that have totally different properties yeah. than each one of those elements taken separately. Yeah. So it is a remarkable thing, and we we're just really. Da- dabbling in the surface, chatting about this. There's yep. so much uh, about the periodic table. Uh, it It's uh, so many layers, so many historical layers, scientific layers, you know, the atomic number, yep. the atomic weight, all of that is given on the chart. So yeah, lots of good stuff here. Check out ptable.com if you want to check out an interactive. There's lots of places you can buy these posters as well. Um, and then, yeah, one of maybe a lot of other good books out there uh, as well. I'm I'm looking forward to reading The yeah, Dis- Disappearing I'm, Spoon. I'm taking this home and continuing to read The Disappearing Spoon. Awesome. Gordon, thank you. Yeah, thank you, Will. We'll see you. We'll see you next time. 